Welcome to the Phase World Podcast, engaging conversations that cross the boundaries between business, art, and the digital world. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Face World Podcast. You're listening to episode number 12, and I am your host, Faye. My guest today is Barry Alexander, a very dear friend of mine for over 10 years. I have always found Barry's passion as a musician, music educator, and consultant fascinating and mesmerizing. I have actually shared his success stories with many of my friends over the past eight years. It just made perfect sense for me to propose a podcast on him, and Barry gladly accepted the challenge. And so today, you will actually hear his stories in his own words. So knowing some of you may not necessarily be professional or amateur musicians, but I am sure you will find much of this information insightful to your life and career. So let's dive right in. I often refer to ABI, Alexander Bono International, as a classical music business empire. Why? With a single piano competition in 2003, it quickly expanded to voice, strings, and flute, as well as an annual music festival held in New York City, a not-for-profit foundation, and most recently, an academy, ABIA, launching in January 2015. In this interview, Barry speaks to ABI's philosophy for helping classical musicians not only launch, but also sustain their careers. One of my favorite topics with Barry during this podcast is when he discussed his belief in talent alone is not enough. In other words, it's not just a question of how talented you, the musicians, the artist, uh, the marketer, um, the developers are, but how you present the materials. ABI teaches and conditions the musicians to be proactive after winning a competition, knowing that the competition only as a platform will help you gain some visibility. Um, but the journey really doesn't just stop there. You have to know how to market yourself. It's not going to be somebody else's job. So speaking of the struggle many musicians face and the rest of us face, Barry responds to a misconception he often encounters as a teacher and as a consultant. That is, some students believe that I am only as good as someone else says I am, but it's really just a matter of opinion. So ABI, Barry's organization, creates another paradigm that is, I am as good as my talent and my willingness to work allow me to become. So lastly, in regards to facing stage fright and the inability to perform one's best, um, Barry and his team created a system that anyone, not just musicians, could benefit and learn from. So I won't give that away just yet, given that it is week of Christmas, uh, in 2014, I invited Barry to sing for us. He no longer marketed himself as a singer, um, but this is a beautiful song, Oh Holy Night, sung by Barry, 
And I hope you enjoy that. You could download the entire song, a little over two minutes, via my website at phaseworld.com. That is F E I S W O R L D, where you'll also find show notes, other tools, and resources. Thanks for listening. And here comes Barry. Welcome to the show. I am uber excited about having you on my podcast. Well, thank you. It is such a privilege. And prior to、uh, starting this conversation, I've given my audience an introduction of you, your bio, and we'll dive in a little bit more. There's so many interesting facts. You know, as I've learned as a podcaster, even、yeah. after I've known some of my、um, guests over the course of 10, 12 years, Oftentimes, I'm rediscovering them as individuals again. It's so fascinating.、Um, so, I would like you, however, to provide us with a little bit of a context of ABI, ABC in this,、um, in this realm, as I discover that this organization has, in my opinion, turned into an empire and there's so many components involved. And I, unfortunately, will not be able to give you know, the clearest, most accurate description. So I will welcome you to provide that intro. All right. And well, the company actually began a while back, about eight years ago, simply because At that point, I ran a public relations firm that was just for classical musicians. All of our, the people on our roster were involved in classical music in some form or another. And that was the original intent of the firm. As it grew, however, we took on other clients from other industries. And one day, I met Cosmo Buono, who is a concert pianist and a Steinway artist. And he told me that he had a piano competition, which he had just started a couple of years before we met. And he was hoping to hire our publicity firm to basically create greater visibility and awareness for the competition. So we took his piano competition and basically rebranded it. We gave him a new website, a new logo, and took all of the history that it had developed. Up until that point, and put it before the public on a new website. 
and the competition grew in such a way that from one year to the next, for three years running, the number of applicants doubled. So it went from X number of applicants one year to 2X the next year to 4X the following year. So wow. in that third year, Cosmo came to me and said, well, the publicity is working very well, but I'm just wondering if our business model for the competition would serve well in a vocal competition so that you, we would not only have the piano uh, competition, but also one for voice. So we started then the Barry Alexander International Vocal Competition. Mm -hmm. Now, this business model that he's talking about is important to underline simply because with most musical competitions, the artists are required to fly to a particular place and then uh, go through elimination rounds. But the concept behind this piano competition that made it so popular and that ultimately was the business model that we continued to develop was allowing people to submit either CDs or DVDs that were then put before a panel of judges so that the artist could be evaluated and prizes chosen on the basis of just the recording alone. Mm -hmm. Then the artist was chosen as a winner and multiple winners from different age categories were chosen so that by the time you came to New York and were offered a first prize, which in the case of the competitions is a performance debut at Carnegie Hall, you came as a winner and not still as a contestant. This saved the people who were applying an enormous amount of money and it created the, um, or eliminated rather, a certain amount of the tension that is sometimes associated with these competitions. So it worked very well for the piano, then for the voice, and we decided subsequently to add uh, competitions for strings and then flute. So the Bradshaw and Buono International Piano Competition uh, became the Alexander and Buono Competitions, or ABC, and that's how we basically started the business. It was an expansion of that one competition, which then led to the four competitions, mm -hmm. and the next steps were to basically incorporate into this a consulting firm, because we discovered helping all of these competition winners that they didn't have a lot of knowledge about how to go about starting a career and launching it, far less sustaining it. So then we started offering consulting services that would help to guide them with regard to their career and that was ultimately the umbrella company that was Alexander and Buono International which then started to include the competitions and also during this time we had developed a music festival Cosmo had had it a, a number of years before, but we rebranded it by bringing it from Venice, Italy to New York and having the competitions at Steinway Hall. So those were two of the things, the consulting firm and the competition, as well as the festival, all went under the, the umbrella of Alexander and Buono International, and those are for-profit corporations. We then decided at some point along the line to start a non-profit where people would be able to receive a scholarship assistance and grants from us to help them further their career and that we have filed for a 501c3 and then we started the Alexander Buono Foundation. So that is basically the story of how the company developed over the last eight years. Wow. wow. This, this, this is this, really impressive, um, Bear, and thanks for providing that information. It's, you know, I am... Um, I'm stunned and you know as a friend I 
I'm really, truly very impressed by how quickly your organization has grown over the years. If my recall, the most, for me, um, the most memorable moment that was years and years ago, perhaps it was not the first piano competition, possibly the second or the third in New York City and inside Carnegie Hall. And I remember the tickets were sold out. Yes. And and I remember this little girl, she must have been five or six years old, and she was from Spain, and her grandfather was there, and um, I remember I saw her as this tiny little child walked up to stage in front of, you know, hundreds and hundreds of people, and her foot could, it could barely reach the, the pedal, and yet she performed like um how what is the right word to describe it she was she was you know prodigy she she was this genius and i had my mouth open during her entire performance so (laughs) well what we've discovered is that there are an enormous number of very young but also extremely talented uh artist and so for the piano competition and the voice and I'm sorry the strings and flute we have an elementary school category that (laughs) allows um, children that are ages uh, 5 to 11 to apply and she fell into that category and surprisingly you know we talk a lot about prodigies in this day and age but these are children who just seem to have a natural gift as she did for the piano and everyone is certainly amazed because you don't expect someone that young to be able to play with that level of proficiency but still it's important to acknowledge that ability and to encourage it so that she'll continue and many of the people that won the the competition over the years are now going on to very, very fine careers. A case in point is a man named Jan Lisiecki who won at the competition when he was only 13 and he has signed a five CD deal with Deutsche Grammophon to record CDs with them. So there is an important emphasis that we like to place on people being encouraged as early along as possible, particularly when they show this level of talent. And I'm very intrigued by the career consulting side of the business uh, that ABI offers. And I put in some additional thoughts as I was preparing for the podcast. Um, I remember my latest encounter in, again, New York City, I believe it was in Steinway Hall, And um, I remember there was a workshop, uh, perhaps that's that's the festival that was going on at the time. And I remember these um, young men and women were, you know, very dressed up in suits. And there was so much pride in um, what they were doing at the time. That really hit me. And um, I would love uh, for you to tell the audience something about the career consulting side of the business. And um, I think... You put it in in the best description uh, possible on on the website um, is really help artists and musicians to build, advance, and sustain their career, and those are three separate things. And I think build initially build, advance. You know, some of them are already at a fairly high caliber, but really bring them to the next level and really sustain it for adults. How do you guys do that? Well, ultimately, the difficulty has always been in perception for a lot of the artists who feel as though their talent is enough and that on the strength of that talent, they will be rewarded with the kinds of careers that 
are appropriate to that talent, which is not the case. We start out with the basic premise in the consulting firm that becoming a classical musician is a career, but also it is a business and has to be treated like a business in the same way anything else would. Moreover, you have to approach it in terms of jobs the way that anyone, an engineer or a doctor or a teacher would. That is to say that you have to market yourself intelligently and you have to package yourself properly and well and there has to be an understanding of how media works so that you can continue to move your career along. Most artists, for example, feel as though once they finish conservatory that the offers are just going to start pouring in for performances and they have no clue as to how to market themselves. So what we do in the initial stages of working with an artist is to package them. In other words, we create a, an interesting and informative website, we write good bios, we, we make sure that they are photographed properly because those elements, the website and bios and photographs are the equivalent of a resume for a job interview. And like it or no, however great your talent is, if you want a conductor or an impresario or a sponsoring organization to hire you, it is not at all unlike interviewing for a job. So you have to have all of the elements and materials there. What is interesting about the age in which we live is that technology allows you to reach far more people than you ever could before, but you have to be able to know how that technology works and how it can work to your advantage. So this is why we spend an, an enormous amount of time with people helping them on their websites and making sure that they have the right kind of bio and also their presentation skills from the standpoint of how they dress and how they speak to people are honed very carefully because in the course of looking for work, which is what you're doing as a classical musician, you are also hoping to build the best relationships with people possible. And that is something that remains a skill in unto itself. And a lot of artists don't know how to do that. They're not familiar with things like how to write thank you notes or how to behave within a social setting that could mean the difference between their getting hired or not even being considered. So all of this, this whole spectrum of behavior and materials and uh, understanding of what components are involved in a career are the things that we address in the realms of the consulting firm. I think this is priceless, Barry. And I feel like a lot of these components um, that really echoed in my mind that from a previous interview I conducted with this gentleman named Stephen Shapiro, who is a public speaker, and he spoke to the domain of mastery and performance. And the idea is that mastery itself isn't sufficient. And now having this conversation with you, I feel like in, in addition to mastery performance, I feel like there's representation as well. Absolutely. Yes, no question. Out of curiosity, let me know if this is uh, if I'm uh, right or wrong. You know, I visited um, Europe in particular, Italy, France, um, those who had this everywhere you walked. And they said there's a vibe of... I feel like there's classical music played at, you know, uh, everyday restaurant. And then I also have some friends who are Japanese who surprised me by saying that ever since elementary school in Japan, every student is required to study classical music. Now, it's hard for me to imagine how a three-year-old would react to that, but I almost feel like an 
organization and experts such as yourself uh, and Bueno are are just such uh, unbelievable resources as advisors, experts to American musicians and many people outside of the U.S. as well. Possibly in the U.S. people are less conditioned to classical music or how to react, how to adapt to it. Is, does that question make sense? Sorry, it was a long-winded... Well, it makes sense. I think that because classical music is in large part a European art form, it is much more absorbed into the culture of European countries because it's there that it originated and people just have it in, as a fab, part of the fabric of their everyday lives. For people in the United States, it's ten, it tends to be considered more specialized and it's also considered a vehicle by which to show a certain level of proficiency. But the reality of it is, is that all kinds of scientific tests have been done in recent years and they show that classical music is a very great help to enhancing one's ability to think and one's capacity to hone other skills like those having to do with science and mathematics. And this is why it has gained an increasing amount of interest among people here in the United States. The other dimension, too, is that there are people who have wanted to pursue careers in classical music simply because they enjoyed it, whether they were singers or instrumentalists. And so the focus is being to have institutions that would uh, concentrate on these things. So it's really very much uh, a, a popular art form within the United States now, too, just perhaps in a different way because it didn't initially start here in the way that it did in other countries. American artists for a long time had to go abroad in order to even study and hone their skills. We have less of that now because there's so many homegrown talents, whether it's uh, opera singers or violinists or flutists. There are many people who study at American conservatories and are able to launch their careers here. So clearly, the passage of time has allowed the influence of classical music to permeate American educational systems to a much greater extent than it than happened before. I think on that note, Bear, you have turned um, our your home station, New York, to a destination of classical music. As I remember from my visit, again, Steinway, um, it was a festival, and I really want you to talk about the uh, academy side of things as well, um, is to provide an opportunity from people all around the world to travel to New York City, and therefore it becomes a destination, and to really um, kind of soak themselves in and into this very holistic approach to classical uh, music. And I'm really curious, um, is the Academy an extension uh, of the festival? And how can people uh, kind of take advantage of this opportunity? Well, the festival itself had started um, about 26 years ago. And it had begun in Italy with Cosmo Buono and uh, David Bradshaw. Uh, so we decided ultimately because of the increasing interest in the festival and people's desire to attend and participate that it was easier for us to do it logistically in New York. It was rather difficult, even a city like Venice, for people to come from Japan uh, or even some other places in Europe to get there. And so New York being the central hub that it is just made much more sense. But in addition to that, because we worked through the festival to provide artists with 
the, as many solid performance credentials as possible. And also because there are so many wonderful performance spaces and venues here, it just seemed much more reasonable to have the festival here. And as we were doing the festival and developing the classes that are part of it, many of which include seminars on the business of music and also seminars that train people in how to best perform, the Academy became a natural extension of that because we wanted to have the opportunity to work with people not just during a summer festival, but year-round in terms of things that we felt they needed for further career development. So we're going to, we started the festival, I'm sorry, the Academy with what we call the Masterclass Series and it is a performance series whereby the artists that are participating meet once a month for six months to perform repertoire. They're ultimately going to perform at Carnegie Hall as the final recital of the Masterclass Series. So that is one part where we're basically training people in all of the aspects that are associated with performance, understanding how to get over stage fright, how to get over nerves, what the proper protocol is for appearing on stage, how to dress, how to make sure that you choose the right repertoire, and even how to control unpredictable elements. For example, if you have a memory lapse on stage and just learning how to cope with those things. That was just one small component, and through the Academy, we've decided to expand matters so that under the umbrella of the Academy, we not only have the Masterclass series, but we give day-long seminars which start in January, and we have two that will occur over a week, a weekend on both Saturday and Sunday, and we're calling the series the ABCs of Classical Music. And the first of these seminars is going to be called the Art and Business of Competitions. And the other one on the Sunday is called Audition Boot Camp. Now, in terms of the Art and Business of Competitions, what people don't always appreciate is that it is not just a question of talent, but it is also a question of the way in which you present your materials. The impact of technology has changed things so that many of the applications one has to apply online, but you have to be keenly aware that there's a, re a research assistant or someone there looking at your application, going to your website, perhaps looking, perhaps looking at your uh, repertoire list, and all of these things have to be considered. But also, for so many people, the understanding of what a competition can and cannot do for their career is somewhat fuzzy. They feel as though a competition, a committee is going to, if you are a winner, just give you a career. At the most, you'll get prize money and you'll possibly get performances, but the artist who wins has to be extremely proactive themselves, himself or herself, about making sure that the comp they, they leverage the competition win to get as much visibility as possible. And that's what the seminar is designed to teach people. It's designed to have you understand the importance of writing press releases and the subtleties and nuances of representation. You can't call up a management house and say, I just won a competition and so put me on your roster. There is a procedure for handling all of those things. So this is why we have decided to have this seminar called the Art and Business of Competition. And the other one, Audition Boot Camp, is designed too to have people create very realistic expectations of what an audition can or cannot do. So many people go into them thinking, well, 
I'm going to impress the audition committee and then I'll get the job. But it's really nothing more uh, uh, than a job interview set to music and you have to treat everything like you would the most rigorous interview whether if you were say for example interviewing for a job in a company as an engineer the practical and uh, very realistic dimensions then of this kind of process are things which elude a lot of artists and so we work to ultimately not only demystify but also demythologize the whole process so that you're as prepared as possible. So this is why the academy becomes so valuable because we do, uh, we are teaching people throughout the entire year. Another class that's of interest, we have one of our faculty members is going to be teaching a class on the German Fach system. Uh, there are categories of voice in Europe that are used to determine the appropriateness of a singer for particular uh, roles and for particular performances. If you don't understand, however, how that works, and you audition in, Ger in Europe, and particularly Germany, you may find yourself actually not being chosen because people don't fully understand the category into which you can be placed. So this, again, informs the whole aspect of business for singers because they need to know how the marketplace works in order to be able to succeed in that marketplace. The academy, therefore, is designed to give people as many tools as possible on a variety of subjects that will help them uh, better understand how to negotiate the business landscape of a career in classical music. It sounds like the academy um, is really not only teaching the artistic side of being a musician, but also the practical, the tactical tools and resources to really help them succeed. And as we all know, you know, uh, I have, again, I didn't go to music school, but I don't mean to discount uh, certain very prestigious music schools all around the world. But oftentimes my friends who did receive their um, a degree in, in music, and many of them struggled to survive um, as musicians. And I think one of the biggest um, roadblock is really how to navigate the system. And I think um, your organization uh, really offers insight, uh, expertise to help people um, create and really organize the information and then teach them how to approach the system on their own. And I was very impressed uh, by the fact that you've also uh, written a book about um, career advice guidance for classical musicians. And, um, uh, you know, that was released in, into the market um, a few years ago. Do you mind speaking to that as well? Kind of, can people maybe get a copy of it? Um, I encourage people to really consider going to New York, attend the Academy, um, but perhaps they could read about the book as well ahead of, ahead of time. Yes, well, we teach seminars called The Business of Music. And those seminars are based on the book, which is called The Classical Musician Today, Getting and Keeping the Career You Want. And it is available through our corporation. You simply have to write and we can talk about that. But uh, it is designed to have artists fully examine all of the factors that can impact a career. For example, there are many people with whom we have discussions 
who say that I want to do this because I want to show my mom and dad how wrong they were about my choice of, of career for myself. That's probably the worst reason to start a career in classical music because if you're trying to prove your worth to somebody else, you miss a certain number of the guideposts that you really need to examine in terms of deciding how well you're doing with that career. The other dimension too is that so many people understand a successful career to only mean having say a hundred engagements a year in, in, in 50 different cities and working uh, from the standpoint of complete success then when they find that they're not getting that number of engagements or even if they do that they're not happy they're disenchanted with it so the career and the expectations for it not only have to be realistically assessed but also the goals of the individual in terms of what will be comfortable uh, regarding a career, but also what will prove to be a burden. There has to be a very, very close examination of all of these factors. Mm -hmm. So in the book itself, what we have done, we've explored all of the things that we feel are important. Uh, for example, there are chapters like the educated musician, and another chapter is things you may not want to hear but really need to know. And at the end of each chapter, there are questions in, in the same format that a workbook would have questions that a reader has to answer. And then he goes to the back of the book where there are comments that help you to expand and flesh out your understanding of basically what you've written about so that you're not only reading the book with a view towards getting a better sense of how the classical music marketplace works, but also how you fit into it and also, more important, perhaps most important, so that we, you are eliminating as many of the illusions that can get in the way of your having a successful career as possible. Finally, with regard to that book, we teach artists how to be as proactive as possible because every, too many people seem to think that talent alone is enough and that the skills at marketing that have made for great careers are things they don't need to have because the marketing is going to be someone else's job, and that's not the case at all either. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. This is so fascinating, and then the reason is, as you're mentioning this, this process, I remembered my own mother, who believed that talent alone was sufficient. And you know what? That was the case, and she was very lucky years and years ago, and she was one of the few who um, you know, happened to be discovered without ever marketing herself. But in today's day and age, that is not at all the case. Even, you know, I feel like this book alone, I, I really want to read the book. And I'm thinking I need to go to the Academy, Perry. There's a lot of things I feel like I could really learn as, um, as a professional myself. And one of the theme I wrote down on this piece of paper in front of me is resilience. Um, is I think that is, in addition to talent, mastery, you know, things such as, I don't think about this very much as um, I'm not a performer on stage very often is, as you mentioned, what if things go wrong, you know? And um, that probably happens more often than not. And, um, you know, I feel like the stage fright and um, just in general, when I remember when I was at Carnegie Hall, I felt very intimidated. I cannot imagine as a child or an adult to stand up on that stage. 
So what are the some of the tips and tricks, Barry? I know we can't really go through a, a very extensive um, amount of pages clearly written in the book, but what are some of the um, a coaching uh, like sort of samples, or what do you? How do you condition your students to to achieve their very best? Well, to your point earlier, there are people who come to our business of music seminars that don't have any interest in music at all, but they say that some of the tools that we are providing are things they need in their careers as physicians and uh, attorneys, because there's so many similarities from mm -hmm. one industry to the next. But with regard to the whole idea of how to create the greatest success and uh, some of the pitfalls to be avoided. We believe very strongly and we've done, we've had a TED talk about this and we also have just talked to people in general. The old paradigm for so many people, no matter what the profession, has always been, I'm only as good as someone else says I am. So there are people who get to decide the value of your work and the importance of your contributions based on something that is really nothing more than an opinion. What we do within the context of what we label the new paradigm is to say to artists, first of all, I am as good as my talent and my willingness to work allow me to become so that we work very hard with artists to start the self-examination from the inside out an understanding of your talent and an assessing of it so that you don't really kid yourself about how good you are or are not you have to understand where your weak spots are and where your strengths are and what you need to market in terms of a public who will be interested in coming and buying tickets to hear you perform with regard to the idea of how to get over nerves and how to essentially approach a performance, we tell all of our artists it is not about what people think about what you did, and that should never occupy your mind when you're on stage. What you have to do when you're in the studio is prepare yourself in such a way that you are in control of everything that you do on that stage. You know why you do what you do, you have studied every single measure, every single note, every single page of a work so well, and also understand the physical connection between what you want to do to create the best sound and what has to be done physically to get that sound. That's what we call techniques. And so we tell artists that it is not you, it is not your responsibility to make people like you. It is, however, your responsibility to find out all of the components that go into doing your best job and the best job you can do as an artist on the stage and to make sure that once you are on the stage, you do your job. So that when you leave the performance, when you're taking your final vows and walking off, it's not about whether they liked you, but whether you can honestly say to yourself, I did my job. In other words, I found out everything that I could put into the music. I found a way to put those things into the music, and I did it. This removes you from this idea of feeling as though someone else is going to make all of the decisions, and you have to hope that they will make decisions in your favor. Ultimately, you can only do your best, and our responsibility is to help you understand the components that go into that and make sure that you're doing that job 
as well as you can. It is a very painstaking process. It is one where you are examining things very carefully at every given turn, but it is not at all unlike what happens in any other profession. We use a lot of analogies, for example, to surgery. And we say to people that a doctor is not in the operating room looking up every two minutes saying, well, how did you like that incision? How did you like that <laughs> stitch I made? Because there is a job to do. And if you are keenly aware of what needs to be done at every step and the patient becomes healthier as a result of your work, you've done your job. You are not there to impress people with your skills. You are there to make sure that you save the life of the person that is on that table. So it becomes a different focus altogether. And the fact that oftentimes we have more control than we think we do. Absolutely. Uh, you know, and this just reminds me that, as you know, I practice Taekwondo, a form of martial art, and I teach children. And I wish I knew some of these things as I was teaching them. The fact that, you know, you hear some of the kids that, I'm too skinny, I'm overweight, I'm too tall, I'm too short. But what can you do um, with what you've got? And I think that's really, um, that's really beautifully um, stated. Thank and, you. <laughs> thank you. And, um, and also I just want to add to that. It sounds like um, I also want to make it very clear to my audience that many of my connections are in New York or in nearby cities. The fact that you really do not need to be a full-time professional musician to consider um, your organization and training and career advice. It sounds to me and um, that perhaps some people are lawyers, physicians in advertising, for instance, that they've once practiced the instruments before, they're interested in vocal singing, and they want to get back into it. And honestly, I, I have a feeling that this, you know, I was playing um, alto sax as well. And as an adult, I feel like your organization really allow us adults to rethink the possibilities. And this is rather exciting to me. Well, thank you. And I, one of the things that we have within the context of all of the competitions is an amateur division because, as you say, there are so many people who practice music but only as an avocation. One of the singers in my studio right now is a radiologist by profession, for example. We have a number of physicians who are expert pianists and they really don't even want to have careers. They just enjoy improving their skills at the keyboard. So it really shouldn't be a situation of your feeling as though you're limited to doing this if and only if you want to have a full-time career. The other dimension too is that there are so many people who have lives with perhaps children or other, you know, other occupations, other um, professions who simply enjoy this as, a, as an artistic outlet. And we work with those people as well too because ultimately the tools that are required to do a good job as a musician are going to be the same whether you are pursuing it as a full-time profession or whether you only want to have it as an avocation in your life that serves as a kind of fulfillment. So everyone is certainly welcome within the framework of the academy. The other dimension too is that there is an enormous amount of practical advice that gets filtered through the net of classical music that has ready application in other aspects of life. For example, just the whole confidence dimension is something that 
we explore not only in terms of what you need to perform well on stage, but as we have, for example, what we call audition boot camp and we have these mock auditions, there are people who had need these same skills even to comfortably get through a job interview because they're so much they really do not somehow or another highlight themselves properly because they're so concerned about what the other person thinks and they don't know how to value their skills enough so that they're going in and talking to a prospective employer in a way that will allow that employer to understand how valuable they are as a person to the company and how their skills base can actually benefit the company and what they are, are looking for. That's a certain amount of self-examination that has to be put in place along with a certain amount of self-confidence so that you can talk about the what you're bringing to the table very effectively. And this cuts across all kinds of professions but and but has already applicability to class, classical musicians because that's uh, our, one of our pri uh, the primary focus of what we do. So it, it's certainly something that people need to consider because the the wisdom as you describe it has a ready application to know just to any profession and no matter what a person is doing. Barry, I would, one of my other questions um, related to all of this is I realize those are the questions I've wanted to ask you in the past four to five years just being so impressed and fascinated by your uh, organization um, but the other question I had was, what are some of the questions that you wish people would ask you? I know people sounds a little general. Perhaps those are uh, journalists, reporters who once interviewed you, your organization, or perhaps those people are parents and students of yours. That questions they don't, they're good questions, but they don't ask enough um, that you would love to provide answers for. <laughs> well, one of the questions I think that comes to mind immediately uh, is how long is this process going to take? So many people feel as though there's a son or daughter starting out the piano who's maybe 10 or 12 at this point and they really want a career in classical music. How long is it going to take before they're going to be celebrated? Wow. There is no, there, people assume almost invariably that in the next, if I start this at age 12 by age 14, my son's going to be playing, my son, my daughter is going to be playing all over the world. It really doesn't happen like that. The other dimension is that it takes years to build a career in the same way that you don't become a good attorney in two years, you can't become a good surgeon in two years. There, there is a growth process that's associated with this, but the idea is to get you on a track where you can become better and better with each year that passes. So this idea of having parents or people ask how long the process is going to take as opposed to it extending out over a period that's longer than they expected and then being disappointed would be something I'd like to, to discuss in the beginning. Mm -hmm. I think um, another thing that I would wish people would ask is what is going to work in terms of the marketplace because so often they feel if I'm a musician for example if I do the most modern repertoire and the most rare things, that's going to launch me and my career a lot faster than if I plan more standard repertoire. You have to meet people where they are and create an understanding of your talent based on the frame of reference that an audience or audiences have already. And usually that frame of reference is associated with their having heard repertoire that was written 
two, three, maybe even four centuries ago, and then understanding how you as an artist fit into a framework that is familiar to them. So many people think that they're going to be able to move forward faster in the career by essentially performing repertoire that is not necessarily of interest to anything but the most sophisticated of audiences, and then they become disappointed when that uh, choice of repertoire and those choices of performance don't result in a career. I think that at the core of it all, I would like people to ask questions that would eliminate or at least reduce some of the disappointment that they get further down the line because they have had a perception of how this career works that is simply not true. And in the preface or introduction to the book, we say that the book was written simply because we don't want people to have to fill in the blank of a sentence that says, if I had only known that, and then you fill in the blank, I would have handled the career differently. There's certain things you really need to know at the beginning that will keep you focused, but that will also keep you from being disappointed to the point of being discouraged and not wanting to continue. And those are many of the same questions that people virtually never ask. Mm -hmm. <laughs> this is great. <laughs> um, and, and I try, you know, I, I was giggling a little bit because my mom also teaches art and she constantly received these questions from the parents, uh, oftentimes a five-year-old. The question is, how soon can I sell her artworks and how should her artworks be priced? And my mom said, this is your second class, you know, and this is comical, but it really happens quite a bit in real life. And and I think we are living in a very accelerated world in terms of thinking process, partially maybe as a result of technology and people just want to go be faster, bigger, stronger with no time, no effort. And, and there's that confusion of uh, net worth and self-worth uh, as well. Um, I think you're really clarifying that, Barry. Absolutely. I think that part mm -hmm. of the conditioning of wanting things to happen very quickly is understandable because if you well, I was if you think about this long before all of the technology when just if you look at something as simple as letter writing if a decision had to be made about a particular issue a letter had to be written the letter had to be mailed it had to be received by the person which usually took about a week. You'd spend, you know, an afternoon writing the letter, then you'd mail it, and then a week later it was in the hands of the recipient. The recipient then has to read it, compose their response, mail that response back to the originator of the letter and the question. So before an answer could be had, there was usually about a two-week time frame minimum mm -hmm. for a solution to be approached or a problem to be solved. The telegraph accelerated that process so that you know, with Morse code and things like that, answers went back and forth much more quickly. Now with email, it's almost instantaneous and we just expect everything to happen almost as if both parties are rubbing a magic lamp and people become impatient if five minutes goes by and they don't have a response to their question. So the conditioning on, from that standpoint is understandable because the technology has made us capable of making everything happen so much faster. Mm -hmm. However, there are certain processes that have not responded 
to that technology. In other words, the physiological process of developing a talent, whether it's learning how to make proper brush strokes on a canvas or bow a violin properly, or have the musculature of the voice developed in such a way that it creates a certain sound, are still things that have not succumbed to the technology and been able to be advanced and accelerated as a result of it. These are still things that are very slow and very painstaking. So one cannot assume that the process of marketing a talent is and the ability to do it so much faster than ever before via all of the, the different uh, technologies and the different media aspects that we have are going to automatically make it easier to construct that talent or build it or have it develop any faster. It simply doesn't happen. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And this is why we are always in a bit of a quandary because we can get the word out there faster, but that doesn't mean that the talent develops any faster. And as we do in the seminars, we tell people, you can sort of force flowers to grow very quickly under hothouse conditions, but they'll grow for that one season and they won't come back. In other words, even if you're working to build a talent very quickly, inevitably, you sacrifice a certain amount of longevity in the name of that result. And that has to be considered when you're thinking about how to accelerate any process because there is inevitably a downside to it and because you cannot circumvent the amount of time that it takes for that process to happen. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Completely agree and really that statement makes me question some of my own anxiety at times, you know, wanting, needing things to happen simultaneously. So time really flies and to respect your time, I, um, you know, took this long but one of the... Um, one of the aspects really fascinating about you, um, Barry, is that you went to college at the age of 14. My goodness. Um, and graduated. And I really want people to learn something about you if you're comfortable um, talking sort of your upbringing. And, um, you know, and I really hope they get to meet you in person one day because there was a very magical moment for me to shake your hands and and um, realize that you are uh, you are this incredible human being, and not to mention my mom, completely agreed. And I remember when you when you sang in front of uh, my mom, I I feel like I could just see as an artist her neurons connected and her heart was pumping, and you know it really connected with you on a on a whole new level. So sorry about all the flattering, but the idea is I want my audience to get a sense of who you are as well. Well, thank you very much for saying all of those things. They're very kind and very much appreciated, just no question. With me, I think it's important to understand that, yes, it's true, I went to college at 14 and I was out at 18, but what I always say to people is this, that wasn't so much an unusual occurrence. I was just doing what was right for me, and I think that parents uh, need to understand that the, the, their child and children are not more distinguished somehow because they can move through things academically faster than somebody else. Yehudi Menuhin always says that we focus, had always said rather, that we focus too much on the idea of a prodigy. We've determined that to do something before a particular age makes a child a prodigy. Mm -hmm. But the child is really not a prodigy. The child is doing what is right for that particular child at that time. Someone else could achieve the very same things and achieve them maybe five years later. That doesn't make that child any less significant. Mm -hmm. 
that to me speaks to the whole issue. When I was growing up, it seemed as though the work that I was given and the classes that I had was not challenging enough. So the teachers came to my parents and said, we'd like to move him ahead uh, so that he will be uh, doing things a little bit faster in order to make sure that he stays challenged. So apparently there was an ability on my part to do work which had been organized and regulated for other students to do at an age that was a couple of years older than my own. So that meant that by the time I was 11, I had already started high school and then, of course, went into college at 14. But that was right for me. I think that in that same way, we cannot put a time frame on this process and decide that a child is more or less valuable based on how soon or how quickly they can do certain things. The important emphasis needs to be learning how to develop at a pace so that you can absorb information as fully as possible and understand it as fully as possible and then use it uh, conveniently and intelligently to go on to the next body of information rather than trying to just uh, push ahead and say, oh, my child is doing this at five and your child was seven before he could do that. There's a little bit too much of that, I think, in terms of an emphasis that parents place on their children to do things sooner and do them faster as opposed to really doing them well. Mm -hmm. And when you have this ability to make your child feel comfortable within the context of the pace at which they're moving, I believe that it enhances the levels of affection that the child has for the parent, number one, and I also believe that the child makes a much more concerted effort to do things really well because he doesn't feel the pressure that if he doesn't do them by a certain time, mm -hmm. he is not as valuable as a person as someone else who's able to move at a faster pace. That I think can be proved very detrimental and somewhere along the line it makes for a lot of insecurities and the need to certainly unlearn certain, certain attitudes and abilities that can prove counterproductive later on. Just do the best that you can at the time that you're doing it, and that will be enough. If it takes you a little bit longer, so be it. But we're not going to feel as though you're any a lesser mortal somehow because you're not doing things as quickly as someone else. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That is very deep with the, you know, how many times people have forwarded that article, Tiger Mom, to me as yeah. an Asian person growing up under the pressure exactly as you described. Um, and I think as I get older, uh, happiness, fulfillment are just as important. And I love the fact that the students come to you not only to advance their career, but also to really enjoy the process of doing, not just when they have a recital, not just when they're on stage, but really appreciate the process. And furthermore, you know, someone could be very talented as a pianist, but perhaps outside of a um, you know, his or her expertise, they must, you know, move on to their lives and, and really encounter other challenges and really interact with other people. And I think patience uh, and dedication are really key to succeed in life overall and not just a certain particular area if you happen to be very talented at it. Barry, I think that concluded our interview. Is there anything else that you would like to speak to that I didn't get a chance to cover? No, I have to say your, your skills as a journalist and as an interviewer are very comprehensive. I'm very impressed with the kind of research you did for this interview, and I think we've touched upon everything that I would feel is 
most significant in, in an interview of this kind. Oh, thank oh. you so much. And um, I um, actually, all of a sudden, I just remembered um, yes. the photographer, um, the woman who might potentially be following you in uh, producing a, um, a film. Do, yes. you, do you want to talk about that? Sorry, I forgot to mention. Oh, that's fine. Well, we've been approached by a director named Cristina Boros, who is um, responsible for a number of documentaries, some of whom, some of which have appeared at uh, the Cannes Film Festival and Sundance and other um, marvelous, marvelous uh, film festivals like that. And she would like, she is currently working on a documentary with us called The New, she, the working title is the new conservationist and what she's hoping to show is how we are basically helping to perpetuate classical music as an art form but also incorporating some of the same things that we've discussed in this interview so as to better prepare artists to not only launch their careers but also sustain them and so far she's has filmed us as we work with um, one of the pianists who is a consulting client and putting him uh, before audiences and the particular day that she was with us, we, it involved um, a fitting for evening clothes for him and a, a new haircut because we had recommended that he have a new look. And so she's doing a lot of work with us there. She also went with us to Steinway Hall one day and did a lot of filming. Uh, we've had the explanation that this project is going to take at least between 18 months and two years because there's an enormous amount of footage that has to be filmed and she said that on average there is a requirement of about 300 hours of footage even to make a 90 minute 90 minute documentary mm -hmm. she's also told us that um, you know there'll be different approaches that she wants to have but you know she has just finished a, um, a, a documentary called the director which is about the head of the House of Gucci, and it's being shown on um, cable at HBO and things like that. She's working on a lot of interesting projects, and we're very, very pleased to be part of uh, this whole process and to be the subject of one of her forthcoming documentaries. We're also working with uh, her producer, Victoria von Siemens, who has worked on any number of documentaries herself as a producer so it's all very much an exciting process for us I think an organization like yours really need to be discovered so I love the fact that you provide marketing tools techniques uh, packaging your artists but at the same time I would welcome more people like myself um, you know journalists or podcasters writers to write about your organization that really provide true benefits To listen to more episodes of the Face World podcast, please subscribe on iTunes or visit faceworld.com. That is F-E-I-S-W-O-R-L-D, where you can find show notes, links, other tools, and resources. You can also follow me on Twitter at Face World. Until next time, thanks for listening. <laughs>